first one is in the book of Matthew. Um, if you're using a pew Bible, that's going to be on page 807 in the pew Bibles, chapter 3. So if you have a little ribbon in your Bible, put your ribbon in Luke chapter 3, which I'll tell you the page number on that as well. That is on page 859 is where we'll be. So put a piece of paper in one place, put a, your ribbon in your Bible in another, because we're going to look back and forth at these several times um, throughout our time together this morning. And um, I really want to make sure you're looking at these passages with me. And we're going to look at some other passages. So when you turn to those passages, we don't want you to lose your place here either. All right? So get your fingers warmed up. We're going to be in a number of places as we work through our passages this morning. As we, our passage, I've titled this morning's message, A Christmas Family Tree. So we think about Christmas time, we think about Christmas trees and the lights that we put on them, the decorations, all that goes on that. But we also think about a family tree. A family tree is our genealogy, um, who my dad was and my dad's dad and my dad's dad's dad, and it goes all the way back. And this morning, to get you excited, we're going to study genealogies. All right, now, some of you are like, that doesn't sound exciting at all. Now, some of you do, though, I'm sure. How many of you really do enjoy genealogies? We won't make fun of you. Some of you do. Okay, you like genealogies. Why? Because we get a little bit of history, but for the most, lots of people just don't get into it unless it's our own genealogy. Then we're a little bit interested. It's like, okay, I want to kind of know things about my past, know things about my history. But even then, sometimes, they're like, I'm not sure I want to know some things about my history. I'm not sure how far back I want to go because there might be some shady people back there and some things that, you know, got some horse thieves and robbers and all kinds of things in the family tree. And not sure I'd want to know that. Well, we're not going to talk about your family trees. This morning we're going to talk about the family tree of Jesus. And in the Bible we have two of these. We have one in the book of Matthew and the other one in the book of Luke. And this morning I have put... Um, all the notes in your bulletin already. Okay? Now, there's some points I'm going to make that aren't in there, um, but I put them in here because I have a bunch of notes that I thought, I don't want to pare these away, so I just put them all in there for you. The blanks are filled in. But I'm going to make some highlights about why God's given us these genealogies and what they do for us. And the first thing I want us to recognize this morning is that, that genealogies, they teach us about identity. Genealogies teach us about identity. We're also going to look this morning that genealogies teach us about promises. So talk about identity. They teach us about promises. They also teach us about the character of God. So they teach us about identity, promises, the character of God. And the last big idea we'll talk about this morning is that genealogies teach us about the story of the Bible. So we see identity, promises, character of God, the story of the Bible. Well, how does it do this? Well, our first idea this morning is that the genealogies teach us about identity. And we're going to see this morning, and what we're going to look at as we look in the book of Matthew, where we start this morning, we're going to see that the genealogy of Jesus teaches us that he is a rightful king. He is a rightful king. God made promises to King David a thousand years earlier about somebody who is going to rise up from his family tree and is going to be seated on a throne and is going to rule and reign forever and ever. And so Israel, the nation of Israel, has been hoping and waiting for this. Who is this king going to be? Who is it going to be? And as we open up our Bibles to the book of Matthew we see that Matthew introduces us to Jesus. And what we see in that, in Matthew chapter 1, what we see in the, the very 
opening verse, it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, when we come to genealogies in the Bible, okay, most of us don't like, we're not like, yes, I can find all these things out, know how this guy is, and know who that guy. Oftentimes we come to genealogies and we just kind of scan through them or skip them all together because it's really, they can be hard to understand. Names you can't pronounce and not really understand how it all fits together. But what I want us to see this morning as we start is that Matthew is going to present Jesus as the king. And if you're going to present somebody as a king, where do you start? With what right do they have to be a king? What right do they have? Because not just anybody can be a king. Right? As you understand kingship, kingships come through family lines and family trees, and, and that's how they get to be a king. And we see in Matthew here, we're going to see that Jesus is the rightful king in this passage. So let's look at some verses. In verse 2 it says, Abraham, that's where this genealogy starts, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, and by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king okay so we're like okay now we could read on them we're going to read a little further and we get all the way down to verse 16 we won't read all those names but it gets to verse 16 and it says and jacob the father of joseph the husband of mary of whom jesus was born who is called the christ and it's interesting because if we're following this it says the father of 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 and we get down here and we hear about Joseph and we would expect the next word to say Joseph the father of but it doesn't say that it doesn't say Joseph the father of Jesus it says Joseph the husband of Mary to whom Jesus was born who is called the Christ now, if we're brand new to our Bibles, if we didn't know anything about Jesus, we didn't know anything else, we'd be like, well, that's weird. Why did they do it that way? But all we'd have to do is keep reading a little bit. So let's look down to verse 18. And it says, because the question, if we're reading this accurately, we're thinking, okay, why does it change here? Okay, let's suppose we're brand new to the Bible, we don't know anything. Why? Well, verse 18, we're going to understand this. It says, now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now let's pause there. So, before they came together, she's found to be with child. What would be our conclusion about where that child came from? Somebody else, not Joseph. And we realize we're right, because Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And if we would look in the book of Luke, we would see that when this happens, uh, Mary, the Spirit, the Spirit of God has come upon her. She's going to tell Joseph what's going to happen. You're Joseph. Your girlfriend's come to you and told your fiance comes to you and says, Honey, I'm pregnant. An angel showed up to me and, um, and said, I'm going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And I promise it's not anybody but another guy. It, this is of God. 
you're Joseph and I heard somebody over here, you laugh. You're like, Mary. I, I don't get this. I mean, if we recognize a stellar couple. No reason to doubt her other than this is unbelievable. Mary, how could I believe you? And, and, and so what happens, look in verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, that's how serious they took engagements at that time. The engagement's called betrothal, and that to break that engagement, it's called a what here? Divorce. But Joseph, he's certainly would have been hurt, doesn't understand all this, doesn't want to embarrass Mary, but he's like, I can't, I can't marry her. I mean, she's got a baby by another guy, and she's, she won't tell me what's going on. So he decides he's going to put her away quietly. But, verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I think in Joseph's mind, he would have thought, that's just what she told me. That's exactly what Mary told me. And now this, this angel of the Lord is telling the same thing. And it says, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Joseph woke from his sleep and did as the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So now we're at the end of chapter 1, and we're like, oh... That's why when it says father of, father of, father of, father of, father of, it says that Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, because Joseph isn't the biological father of Jesus. Now, why is this important? It's important because a few minutes ago when we were reading through this family tree, we saw that it came to David and it ends up at Joseph. You think, yeah, but Jesus isn't of Joseph's bloodline. No, but Joseph married Mary, and by marriage now, Jesus has a legal right to be the king. And we see that all over the place in, in Old Testament times and old times. How do you expand your kingdom by intermarriage and all that and through marriage? And so this morning, what we understand is that the genealogy of Jesus that we trace through the book of Matthew is that of Joseph, and it demonstrates to us that Jesus has a legal right to the throne. That he is, it is right for him to be the king. So, as we recognize this, then let's look now. So this one genealogy, let's go back to the book of Luke and let's compare it. In the book of Luke, chapter 3, verse 23, this is on page 859 um, in your Bible. And look how verse 23 begins. Luke 3 says this, Jesus when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Okay? And now it says, being the son, as it was supposed, of Joseph. Okay, there we see that idea again. That is not his biological son of Joseph, but as it is supposed. Now, if we would travel along through this, this uh, genealogy, we get down to verse 31. And turn to, look at verse 31 with me. And it says that Malia, the son of Mina, the son of Mattatha, 
the son of Nathan, the son of who? David. Okay, now, keep your place here. David. Now, who's the son of David here? Nathan. Okay, so we have Jesus, and then Nathan, and down here it goes on. Back in Matthew, okay, look in verse 6 in Matthew 1. So we have David, and then we have Nathan. And now, in chapter chapter 1, verse 6 of, of Matthew, it says, Jesse was the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon. So, if we would look at the branches of the family tree, that, that it gets to David, and now we're seeing two branches. One goes through his son, Nathan. The other goes through his son, Solomon. As we look at the difference, those trees are going to branch differently. And as we would compare these genealogies, we won't take time to do that, but we see there's significant difference but where these trees go now. And now, as a thousand years go on, from the time of David to the time of Jesus, these branches get really far apart. And as we're reading these genealogies, we look at Matthew and Luke, and they're really different after David. And it's because they go, they're going after these different sons. And now, what's going on in that? Well, in the book of Matthew, we have the genealogy of Joseph, the supposed son of Je- Joseph, the supposed father of Jesus. And in the book of Luke, we have the genealogy of Mary. And so we see these two genealogies that grow up. And so we have Mary and we have Joseph over here. And so you'd ask the question, well, so they were related? Yep, they were related a thousand years ago. Okay, so it's certainly not a close marriage, nothing that we need to be concerned about with that. But we recognize that these two genealogies show us things much different. And so what we see then, that Jesus, his genealogy in the book of Luke is traced back to Mary. And why this is significant is because through Mary, Jesus has a biological or a bloodline right to the throne. And so putting these two things together, Jesus is the rightful king he has a legal right to the throne and a bloodline or a biological right to the throne. And so, as we see Jesus being introduced to us as a king, we see this. And this is important because if Jesus is going to reign, he has to have the right bloodline. He has to have the right family ties because he just can't say, I'm going to be king, but he's related to all of us. Okay, now, back to, back, back to Matthew 1. Okay, so we see this part of the genealogy. Now, we're going to put a lot of things together, and it's going to culminate at the end. Okay, so we've got to hang with us as we walk through these genealogies. They're, they're really good. Because genealogies are about what? Our first thing, our geneal- genealogies are about identity. And Jesus is being identified as the king. Okay, well, as we also recognize these differences, back in Matthew 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the king, but now it also says the son of Abraham. And as Jesus, as a son of David, as Jesus, as a son of Abraham, that becomes really important because all the way back at the time of Abraham, thousands of years ago, the God made a promise to a guy by the name of Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation, that, that, that he was going to be the father of the Jewish faith. Why is that important? Well, we see that Jesus, he tra- his family line is traced all the way back to Abraham, which means Jesus is a fellow Jew. Matthew was written to a Jewish audience to demonstrate that Jesus is the king, to help them to understand that Jesus is one of them. 
that he's related to them in Abraham. Now, how do we compare that to Luke? Turn back, back to Luke. Look at Luke at the end of Luke, and we're going to look at a few names here. Um, Luke chapter 3, verse 36. Okay, so Luke 6, 3, 36, it says, it's given all this genealogy, and it finally gets to down here way early. It says, verse 36, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah. We know that guy, right? He's the one who built the ark. Okay, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, where did Matthew's genealogy begin? Who was the first guy? Abraham. Over here in Luke, who's the first guy? Adam, okay? So, as we see, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and what's important to them is their Jewish heritage. God made all of these promises to the Jewish people, and Jesus is tied, and he is one of them. Now in Luke, Luke's writing to a Gentile audience, to people like us, Gentiles, non-Jews, and he traces the genealogy all the way back to Adam, to teach us that Jesus isn't just one of them with the Jews, that Jesus is also one of us, that Jesus is a man. He is fully identifies with us as a man. And so, as we recognize these two genealogies are really important because this traces genealogy to Abraham and identifies with the Jewish people, that Luke traces it all the way back to Adam, that he's one of us. Okay, so we're seeing these promises being put together that Jesus isn't just Jewish, Jesus is also identifies with all of us, with all people. Now, this is really cool because at the end of verse 38, it says that Jesus is a, is a son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, and the last one it says that he is the son of who in verse 38? Son of God. Okay, now, look back with me in chapter 3 here in Luke, in verse 21, before we get to the genealogy. Okay? Who is he at the end of chapter 3? Son of God. Who is he here? In verse 21, this is the baptism of Jesus. It says, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. So Jesus is baptized, the heavens are open, and the Holy Spirit descends on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Who's the voice from, who's the voice from heaven? God the Father. What does God the Father says? This one who is in this water, who has been baptized, is my son, with whom I am well pleased. We would understand that, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who came to dwell on the earth, lived in the flesh for 30 years, 33 years, and He always pleased the Father. And here we're saying that Jesus, it, the, the Father is saying, this is my Son. And at the end of chapter 3, we're seeing that Jesus is also the Son through Adam. And these two sonships help us to understand a really significant point in theology, and that is that Jesus is fully man through Adam, and he is fully God as a son of God. 
And we see these two truths and why these truths are important, that Jesus is the Son of God and the Son of Adam. Why these are important is because we need that. You see, we need that because the Bible tells us that it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we are rebels against the holy God and we are separated from Him. Isaiah 50, chapter 59 says that our sin makes a separation between us and God. And so we're separated from God and we need help. We can't get back to God on our own. We can't get there. So what does God do? God provides a mediator. Okay, now, what does a mediator do? Let's suppose we have a factory here in town. It's a unionized factory. And there's a dispute between the union and management. They call in a mediator. And a mediator is supposed to help settle disputes. Here's the question. Who does the mediator represent? Does the mediator represent management? Yes. Does the mediator represent the workers? Yes. The mediator comes in and stands between the two to fully represent management and to fully represent labor. And they do that. Why? Because they want to bring them back together. What has God done for us? God has sent this one who is the Son of God, this eternal Son of God who is God Himself, takes on the flesh, Jesus fully God. He takes on flesh as a son of Adam. He fully represents us as a human and fully represents the Father as God. And we see these put together in a significant way. And why do we need that? Because apart from that, we can't be reconciled to God. And then we ultimately know Jesus comes as that mediator, that he takes our sin upon himself. He dies on the cross. So the payment for our sin is met. Justice of God is carried out. He can be both the the just and the justifier and bring us back to God and that we can be born again and made new. Why? Because God the Son, God the Father, sent the Son in the form of a human man, the Son of Man, to be our Redeemer. He has done that for us. These genealogies are significant in helping us to understand this theology. Well, as we said, the genealogies are about identity. We're identifying Jesus as man, Jesus as God, Jesus as the son of David, Jesus as the son of Abraham, Jesus as the son of Adam, Jesus as the son of God. But we also recognize that genealogies are also about promises. They're promises made to these same people. Back in Matthew, God made promises to Abraham. He made promises to David. He made promises to Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And we see that. That Matthew, in the book of Matthew, we see Jesus being connected to the promises of Abraham and David. And we see Jesus then is the one through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. God has said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to bless you, but all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through your son. And we would think, well, how would that ever happen? How would all the nations of the world be blessed through one person's offspring? We get to Jesus, and as we read about the work of Jesus and what he's done, we hear the call of Jesus, and Jesus say to us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We hear Jesus say, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. We hear John 3, 16, for God so loved the what? 
world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life how does this promise of god to abraham fulfilled in jesus is jesus becomes the savior of all who will call upon the name of the lord it doesn't matter what your nationality is it doesn't matter what background what family you're from if you call upon the name of the lord you will be saved why because god has fulfilled these promises that he made through abraham to us He's doing that. He, he also fulfills these promises, not just to Abraham, but also to David. That, that David, as we talked earlier in the book of 2 Samuel, we read about God making a promise to this king, this, this boy who was a shepherd, who God raised up to be a king, who kills Goliath, who does all these great things. God raises him up, makes him this great promise that you will have an offspring sit on the throne forever and ever. Jesus has now come. Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus is the king. As we understand this, that Jesus is this coming. He is not only a king, but he's a coming king. And he is going to rule and reign forever and ever. There's coming a day, listen, when Jesus is going to come back to earth, establish rule on the earth. After all of that's done, a new heaven and a new earth are going to be created, and Jesus is going to rule and reign with perfect justice, and give us perfect joy. That's the hope that we have. And these genealogies are teaching us that they teach us about identity, but they also teach us about these promises. Well, as we look at these promises to Abraham and David, we also see promises that God made to Adam. And, and, and I want us to look all the way back in the book of Genesis. Okay? Keep, keep your places in Matthew and Luke, and now let's go to Genesis. Because our genealogy in Luke said that Jesus was the son of Adam, the son of God. And in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we realize that God's created man. He takes Adam from the dust, breathes life into this dust, and gives it life. Tells them that they can eat of any tree in the garden. Any tree in the garden, God's created this luscious place for them. And you can eat any of them you want. Let's suppose there are a thousand trees in this garden. And he says, all these trees, you can eat from them, except for one. There's only one, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil you can't eat from. Here's a question. Does it sound like God's a stingy God? Absolutely not. It's not like, listen, I've made a thousand trees for you, but you only get to eat from one of them. We'd be like, all right. But he's made all that. I mean, it's abundance. There's only one tree they can't eat from. And he says to them, if they eat from it, what's going to happen? What's going to be the result? They will die. Well, what happens? We get to Genesis chapter 3. Satan shows up in the garden in verse 4 of chapter 3. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And he's tempting her to eat it. She looks at the fruit. It looks good. It's appealing to her eye. It's good for food, making her wise. And what does she do? She takes and she eats it. And then she gives it to her husband who also eats. We read in Scripture later, we recognize that Eve was deceived. Adam ate the fruit with his eyes wide open. He rebelled against God. And in his rebellion against God, God shows up and then God pours out to them and tells them the consequences of their sin. 
and the consequences of their sin. They, we're going to read about that. There's going to be pain in childbirth for the woman, that, that, that thorns and thistles are going to grow up. It's going to make work toilsome for, the, for, for Adam. But look what he says in verse 15. Genesis 3.15, if this verse isn't underlined or circled in your Bible, I would encourage you to circle or underline it because it's huge. It says this, I, this is God talking, will put enmity, that strife, I'll put hostility, between you, this is the serpent, this is Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring or your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your heel, and you shall bruise, I'm sorry, you shall bruise his, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if we're Adam and Eve listening to that, we're kind of scratching our heads. We're like, I wonder what that's all about. About, we're going to crush the head of this serpent, but he's going to strike the head of one of the seeds of the woman. And there have been lots of questions that they certainly would have had. And if we're just reading our Bible and that's what we come to, we're scratching our heads too thinking, what's that all about? But as we continue to read in Scripture, we realize that the seed of the woman is a unique phrase because typically in the manner of how reproduction happens in the human race, they didn't understand, they didn't have the knowledge uh, at that time of how how life grows. They didn't understand about what a man contributes and what a woman contributes and how that comes together to form a baby. They didn't understand that. What they understood is what we would naturally think about, if you're going to plant corn, what do you do? You take the seed and you put it in the ground. And then what grows? The seed. Okay? So we understand why that that would be their understanding. And so the seed would come from who? The man. But here... It says the seed of the woman, her offspring, her seed. And I think they'd been scratching their heads and thinking, I don't understand that. So what we should do when we read the Bible and there's something we don't understand, we just keep reading. And as we keep reading and we keep reading and we keep reading and we read this much of the Bible, we get to the book of Matthew. And we read about a woman who's going to have a baby without the seed of a man that it's her seed. And we realize, oh, what God was saying all the way back there to Adam, to Eve, and to the serpent, that's being fulfilled in Jesus. He's the seed of the woman. And he's the seed of the woman who it says is going to, that the serpent will strike his heel, but he will bruise the head of the serpent. And we begin to recognize, what did Jesus do? Well, when he died on the cross, that certainly would have been a painful strike by the serpent. But by Jesus' death on the cross, what did Jesus do with his death on the cross? Is that his death on the cross is he crushed the head of the serpent. And he won victory for that by, by Jesus, by him giving himself for us. He dies on the cross and raised from the dead to crush the head of the serpent so that the curse no longer rules, the curse no longer reigns. This, this idea of Jesus as the snake crusher is, just reminds me of the, um, the movie The Passion of the Christ. Um, it, if you haven't seen it, it's a really good movie. It's really brutal. It's hard to swallow because it's, it's, it's tough. It shows the, demonstrates the crucifixion, the beatings of Jesus. But 
At the first part of the movie, Jesus is, it's this dark, dark setting. Jesus is in a garden praying, and he's praying, he's sweating drops of blood, and he's intense, and we see this, as, as they're picturing Jesus, they then go in this picture of a snake slithering through the garden. And then it comes back to Jesus as he's praying, and he's saying, praying, Father, not my will, but your will. And, and we see the snake slithering through. And again, Jesus praying, not my will, but your will. Does it three times. And the, clearly the answer from the, from the Father is, my will is for you to go to the cross. And that Jesus clearly, he understands that in the movie, Jesus gets up. And as he gets up, then we see Jesus and the snake, and Jesus crushes the head of the snake. And watching the movie, when I'm watching that, the first time I ever saw that, I just wanted to stand up and say, yeah, that is exactly what this is all about. I'm going home. Because that is the whole story of the Bible. That Jesus, the seed of the woman, has come to crush the head of the serpent. And by crushing the head of the serpent, he wins the victory and he's going to make everything right again. And that's what our Savior is doing today. And as we read in this genealogy of Jesus, and it says, and, and Jesus, the son, of, son, the son of Adam, the son of God, we realize he's the seed of the woman who's fulfilling these promises that's for our good. And he's accomplishing all of this for us. And so in this genealogy, we see God, we see this identity, we see God demonstrating that he is the one who fulfills all these promises to Adam. He is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. With the genealogies of Jesus, they teach us about identity, but they also teach us about promises. The genealogies of Jesus teach us about the character of God. Turn back with me to Matthew 1. All right, we're picking up the pace, all right? So, Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah. Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, we pause right here, and what we see is, what's going on in these genealogies? There's a story of the Bible being woven through this. And what we begin to see is that God's character is being revealed through the Scriptures. One of the ways we see it is, first of all, the name of Jesus. That the name of Jesus is, you shall call his name Jesus, earlier in chapter 1, because why? He will save his people from their sins. The very name of Jesus teaches us that we have a God who is eager to save. Listen, today, if you don't know Jesus is your Savior, I want you to know that Jesus wants you to come. He wants you to come to him. He's made it possible for you to repent of your sins, and he invites you to come to him. He calls you, and I encourage you this morning to think about, it. where are you? His name means Savior. He is our Savior. That's the character of God. We also see that Jesus' name is Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, that he always keeps his promises. Jude read earlier in our passage when we were singing in it, he read in Isaiah, from Isaiah, when it talks about a child will be born to us and the government will rest upon his shoulders and his name will be Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus is that Son who has been born for us. He is all of that, that we see God makes promises and God keeps promises. The genealogies teach that. The genealogies also teach us that God chooses and uses people by grace. We think, why did God choose Abraham? By grace. Why Isaac? By grace. Why all these? By grace. 
And we see in this genealogy, we read of this guy named Judah. And if we would scroll back in our Old Testaments, we'd read about Judah, who he's the one who had the idea of, let's sell Joseph. We hate our younger brother. Let's sell him. Into, let's sell him. It was his idea. As we read in the next chapter, the very next chapter in Genesis, that Judah has a daughter-in-law, his son dies, and Judah won't give him another son to be able to produce and carry on the family name. Tamar is her name. She disguises herself as a prostitute. Judah hooks up with her, and she becomes pregnant. And and then they have these twins. Their name's Perez and Zerah. That's in the family line of Jesus. We continue to read a little further in the, in the family line of Jesus. And we begin to, to learn of more characters. We see about, about Tamar, we see her character. Later on, we read about, about Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. She's in Jesus' family line. We read about Ruth, who is a foreigner. She's an outsider. She's not even a Jewish person. How does she get in here? We read about David. And we know Jabez is a giant killing king, wonderful king, but we also realize he was an adulterer who had the, the husband of Bathsheba who he had, had, had sexual immorality with killed. He's in this family line. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. His heart was turned from God. We read in the genealogies of good kings, the family lines who turned, turned the people back to God. But we read of bad kings who turned the nation to idolatry. We also read of really bad kings who went so far in the family line of Jesus, one of them by the name of Manasseh. And Manasseh, what did he do? He offered his son as a burnt sacrifice. Wicked, wicked stuff. And we see all of this in the family line of Jesus, which should give us an incredible picture of God's grace. That this is the kind of God that we have. He uses and He chooses good, bad, ugly, wicked, and, and He by grace. But another way of saying that is He chooses and uses people just like us. Just like us. None of these people deserve to be in the family line of the Messiah. None of us deserve to be in the family of the Messiah. But we do by grace, because of God's grace, because of his love. As we recognize this as well, if, if somebody was going to make up a story about a Messiah, somebody who's going to be the hero, who's going to deliver and do and all this, this isn't how you'd write their genealogy. If you're making up, if this is a made-up story, that's not a, that's not a genealogy you make up. But if you're writing about a real person and a God who has real grace and a, and a Savior who's going to identify with sinners, this is exactly what we'd expect the genealogy to look like. As we see this, we see the, the goodness of God shining through in us, in this, that God is always working. He works to rescue us from our sins. He always keeps His promises. He uses us and chooses us according to His grace, not our merits. Well, as we continue on, we want to see also here in Matthew 1, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What we also see is that these genealogies aren't simply about identity and promises and the character of God, but they're also about the story of the Bible. Turn with me back to the book of Genesis chapter 5. 
Genesis chapter 5. This is a really, as we think about how God's put his Bible together, this, what we're going to see right here, is just an amazing reality. Look how chapter 5 begins. What we're going to see in this is that the Bible and this genealogy of Jesus is a story of two Adams. In Genesis chapter 5, it says this. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness, in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own image after his likeness and named him Seth. Now, here's what I want us to see in this. That this phrase starts out that this is the book of the generations when God created man. That phrase there that's in Greek, okay, in the, in the Greek Old Testament, which would have been the version of the Bible that the um, people at Jesus' time would have been reading, that is this phrase where it says the book of generations. Okay? When we turn to Matthew chapter 1, when it says the genealogy of Jesus, it's that exact phrase. It's the exact phrase. Here's why this is significant. Because here we're saying this is the book of the generations when God created man. What's going on in Matthew? Matthew is seeing us, helping us to see this is the book of generations when God became man. This is the book of generations when God became man. How did he do it? That Jesus is the son of of Abraham and the son of David and the son of, son of, son of. This is how God did it for us. And so Jesus becomes to us a second or the last Adam. Jesus is the last Adam. And so in the Bible, we see this story of these two Adams, this first Adam who God gave commands to, and he failed and he rebelled, and we see all the consequences of it. We turn to the New Testament and we see the story of the last Adam, that Jesus shows up on the scene and we're shown with his genealogy. Well, what else does that teach us about this? That we realize that the first Adam was created from the dust of the ground and the breath of life. The last Adam, God created the last Adam from the seed of the woman and the spirit of God. The word spirit is breath, pneuma, ruach, same word, breath. As we recognize Jesus is the first, Jesus is the last Adam. He fulfills everything that the first Adam failed to do. We see this contrast of Adams here as well, that the first Adam that God made in his image and likeness, God said, I'm going to create man in my image and likeness. What do we see when, when the Son of God comes down to earth to be with us? What we see with the last Adam is that God took on the image of man. This beautiful contrast, God becoming man, God taking on the form of the one, very one that he created, that he created from the dust. As we would see this contrast as well, we would recognize that the first Adam became a living person that God breathed into the dust and Adam became a living person. The book of 1 Corinthians tells us about Jesus and it tells us that Jesus became a life-giving person. Jesus gives life. Adam was a living being. Jesus is a living being. But more than a living being, he gives life. And who does he give life to? For all who will call upon his name. 
and he'll give life to all who call upon him. And as we, as we continue to see this, that, that Adam, the first Adam, failed to obey God. And what happened? Well, let's look. In Genesis 5, I want us to see, God said in Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 2, if you eat from the fruit, you will die. Now, Genesis 5, here, I want you to follow with me because this is really, God's making a point. And let's see if you can find, figure out the point God's trying to make. Genesis 5, okay, so God's created, this is the generations when God became man. In verse 5, it says, thus, all the days Adam lived were 930 and he died. Skip down to verse 8. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11. These are the days of Enosh, were 905 years, and he died. Verse 14. Thus are all the days of Kenan, were 910 years, and guess what? We continue on down in verse 17. These are the days of Mahalalel, were 895 years, and he died. Verse 20. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. We're going to see an exception with Enoch, that God takes him, but then we're right back to it in verse 27. The days of Methuselah, and he died. And what we're seeing in this, why the repetition? And he died, 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 and he died. We don't read that in other genealogies. We just read it. This person was this person was this person. Because what's the assumption? Well, of course they died. Why are we being told then? Why is he telling us, and they died, 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 and they died. Why tell us that so many times? Because it's communicating to us that God keeps his word. He had said three chapters earlier, if you eat from it, you will die. And this death that Adam has now spread to all men. And because of Adam's sin, sin infects us all, that we all will physically die, but we also are all spiritually dead. That in Adam, all of us, all of his offspring will die. All of his offspring are dead. Did you realize today, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you are dead? You are spiritually separated from the life-giving God. And God is the one who seeks to give life and will to all of those. But you also realize that, that the first Adam failed to obey God and the result was all of his offspring die. Here's the good news, that the last Adam always obeyed God. Jesus never sinned. He always obeyed God. And because he always obeyed God, now all of his offspring can live. That those who are the offspring of Jesus, there's no, and he died. That what happens whenever I trust Jesus as my Savior and he's born again. And born again into what kind of life? Everlasting life. That it never ends. That it goes on and on with God in a new heaven and a new earth in paradise forever and ever and ever. Where he's reigning as the king forever and ever and ever. And that we are enjoying him and his good creation forever and ever and ever. John 3.16 makes it clear to us that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have everlasting life. 
And the questions for us this morning, as we study these genealogies, we learn a lot about Jesus. That the question that we're confronted with as we read these genealogies, that we, read, we, we have the question, what does your family tree look like? What does your family tree look like? You say, well, I'm Steve, I'm the son of David, the son of Charles, the son of Otto, the son of, I can't, not let me, how far it goes back beyond that. That's my part of my family tree. But as we think about our family trees that we need to recognize, is my primary identity tied to the family I was born into? My primary identity is as a wicker, and ultimately, in a bigger picture, is my family identity ultimately tied to me being in Adam? Or is my primary identity tied for me in the new family that I have been born into? The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working together to breathe life into me and give us life. Which family tree identifies you? The family tree of Adam, where, where in the family tree of Adam that, that you're primarily focused on your story, making a name for yourself, they're primarily focused on living according to your own standards, or living according to this new life, this, this new family tree that we've been engrafted into by grace, that by we're grafted into this new family tree, and this new family tree is now all about God and His story. That the new family tree means I want to know God. I don't want to just, I'm not just focused on knowing me. I want to know God. I want to love Him. I've loved myself long enough. I want to love God, and I want to live for Him. I've lived for myself long enough. And for us to be thinking, which family tree do you identify with that we have a God who has come to rescue us, to give us new life, to put us with a new family, to give us a new identity, to give us a host of promises, to reveal His character to us, and for us to be united to His story. And so the call this morning is for us, who are you identifying with? With Jesus or with Adam? with the Savior, or with ourselves. I encourage you as we close this morning to consider this, that we have a good, good, good Father who has sent His Son so that we can be a part of His family. And for an unbeliever, I would call you, turn to Him today. For believers, I would ask the question, does your life reflect that you are a child of God? Are you living according to it? Well, we'll receive our morning offering, but let us pray, ask God to help. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us these, these genealogies of Jesus. And Lord, it's to our shame that we're oftentimes bored by these, that we, 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 just, we sometimes just don't get them. But Lord, I pray this morning that you've helped us to understand that these genealogies do help us to understand the identity of Jesus, understand the promises that you've given to us, promises that you understand the character of who you are and what you are like, that you are a God who brings undeserving people into your kingdom and you recognize that, that we would be united and be united to the story, uh, the story of Adam instead of our own story. God, help us. Lord, I pray you would stir our hearts today. Lord, if there are those who are today are wrestling with sin, wrestling with rebellion, re- wrestling with forgiveness, wrestling with these types of things, God, they would turn to you this morning. 
And Lord, I pray for those who are walking faithfully with you, God. I pray that you'd help them to have their eyes fixed on you and continuing to move forward and to engaging others with them. God, thank you for your abundant grace. Thank you for the family of God. Thank you for this family tree of Jesus that teaches us so much about you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.